Scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 21. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with with iniquity." Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit 
that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth. Uh, My spirit that I have put upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, welcome. Um, We are in week two of Advent, as it's been uh, said already. And um, uh, this week is, our our theme is kind of peace. And uh, if you you were paying attention during the the reading of our teaching text today, uh, we're just going to stay in this one chapter um, all day and work our way through it. Um, there's a line in there of that, uh, basically the world has gone mad, everything is dark and we know no peace and the roads that we have built for ourselves are so crooked that they won't lead us to, uh, any kind of peace. Um, and so, uh, Christmas is, uh, a season of good news of, of glad tidings. Um, but someone said, uh, the good news is only so good because the bad news is so bad. <laughs> and so uh, we get a little bit of both of those things uh, today. But I really want us to, to think about uh, these themes again uh, today. Last week we looked at the theme of hope. And that is going to really flow uh, through our, our, uh, our text today as well. Um, really when you think about uh, these weeks of Advent, um, we start in week one with hope because really the rest of them flow out of that idea, isn't it? Um, all of our hope, our hope, our longing, our hope and expectation is for peace. Uh, it is what we hope for. Uh, we, are ho- we hope for love. We hope for joy. Um, and we culminate all of this in our hope for Christ um, who brings all of these things to us. And so we're going to think about these things again today of hope, uh, of peace, and, and really how we work toward that. Really the human heart, um, you and I, we are hardwired for hope. Um, that's the way that we have been built. When you think about how we make our decisions in life, um, just even day to day, the daily choices that you and I are faced to make, um, every response to situations that we have, the relationships uh, 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 that we have in our life. All of these decisions and choices that we make in the midst of these things are all motivated by our hope. Um, If you think about your happiest moments in your life, these are the moments uh, that hope was fulfilled, right? Um, So if you're married and have kids, like when people ask you, what are the happiest days in your life? Whether it's true or not, those are the answers you give, right? The day I got married, right? And, and so that's this, the day where all this hope, like I hoped I would find someone. I hoped I would, you know, have a, a, a soulmate or a, a life partner. And this is the day that that hope was fulfilled. Um, or the day that w- the children come into the world. Um, you, you, there was this hope and expectation. Um, and it's fulfilled in that, in, the, in these moments um, where we have our kids. And then you hope that they grow old enough to leave your house. So, um, no, that's still in the future. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, our happiest moments are, are these hope-filled moments. Uh, our, our saddest moments, really, if we're honest, are, are about hope that has been dashed. Uh, it's about hope and expectations that haven't come to fulfillment um, or the ending of, of certain things that uh, our hope was. And so we are always as human beings, attaching our hope to something. Um, Hope is this object. It's this expectation that we have. Um, We're always hoping in something and and asking that something to deliver something to us. Um, That is what hope is, isn't it? 
Um, it's an object. It's an expectation. And we tend, to, we tend as, as a human race to, to constantly look for hope in places that it cannot be found. Um, all the love songs in the world that have been written about are, are really at, at the bottom of them about that, isn't it? Um, about hope, uh, about love found or, or love lost and being disappointed in it. And so often we can be frustrated, often we can be disappointed, often we can be confused um, because we want things to give us hope that just can't. They, they weren't uh, made to bear the weight of our hope. Um, and so we asked the question last week, and we'll ask it again this morning, what are you hoping in this morning? What is, what is it that you're seeking to give you that deep peace um, of soul rest, that thing that will, that will finally put our soul to rest and finally give us the peace, that deep inner peace that we are longing for. Um, when life is hard for you, when it is difficult or when it is confusing, when you're dealing with the unexpected, or maybe when life just isn't the life that you had hoped it would be. This is, this is the life that I have, but, but if I'm honest with you, this life that I'm in, in now isn't the life that I had hoped for 10 years ago. In those moments, where do we run for our comfort? Where do we run for our security? In those moments, where will we find our peace? Or will we live lives, unpeaceful lives, full of anxiety, full of, of uh, confusion? Where really is our functional hope? Um, what is the object that we are looking for our functional peace in life? Um, and those can be lots of different things. Sometimes it's a constant affirmation um, of the people in your life. Right? We want people to affirm us, uh, to make us feel good. It's you know, the classic kind of things of financial security or, or maybe a, a future spouse or kids or, or position or power or to be well-known. Um, but we constantly tend to attach ourselves to these things that we hope will offer us uh, hope and peace. Um, but they just won't deliver what we're asking them to deliver. And we're going to see that this morning from Isaiah 59. Um, the reason this is such a great passage is because it's written in, in this kind of dark moment in the history of, of, of Israel. Um, in, in the, these are, are God's people um, to whom and through whom he has chosen to reveal himself. And um, it, it's not going so well for them. The children of Israel, they've been in captivity in Babylon. And they've come back now and, and they've come back to Jerusalem and they've found it an absolute train wreck. Um, the walls of the city are, are no more. The temple is no more. There's no government. There's no enforceable set of laws, really. There's no obvious leadership. There's no justice. There's um, violence in the streets. There's massive poverty. Um, it's just complete social breakdown. Um, and this is where they find themselves. And it's into this darkness. It's into this um, just dire situation of them that this discussion of hope through the prophet Isaiah um, brings to them. And this is important for us because it's in our dark moments. It is in our moments uh, where things have gone dark, where they're not the way that they should be, when, th- they're not, when life isn't w- what we've hoped for, um, that we will really find uh, what our true hope is in. It, it's, it's the, it exposes us in those moments. Um, it exposes us. And our real hope, our true hope, um, that we hope will come through for us um, or that we'll be deeply disappointed in. And so 
this uh, first section. Um, the, this, this chapter is really broken into four, four parts. So let me just lay those out for you so they make sense as we walk through them. Um, and the first section begins with this kind of false charge in verse, in verse 1. Um, so that's the first section we'll look at. Verses 2 through 8 are, are God's kind of accusation um, to the people. Um, and so when God accuses you, we should listen to that. And then verses 9 through 15 are this very important confession of the people. And then finally, the last section in, in 16 to 20 is God's answer or his divine intervention um, that takes place. And so just keep that kind of framework in mind. That's where we're going to walk through this morning um, as we think about this. I think before we look at the actual text, though, um, a few things uh, just to keep in mind. When we think about hope, when we think about peace, when we think about the things that we're looking for, um, the entry point into that, the entry point into finding a hope that will actually sustain, um, a hope that is actually built to bear the weight of all of our expectations. The, this is counterintuitive, but the, the entry point into that is hopelessness. Um, we have to come to a point of hopelessness. The only way we ever try, try, the only way we ever find true hope is to really give up on all the places that we've tended to put our false hope in. And so the entry point, the doorway um, into hope is hopelessness. And for hope to be reliable, for it to be trustworthy, um, for it to actually be a hope that can bear the weight, it has to fix what is broken, right? It actually has to address the biggest, deepest, darkest kind of problems and dilemmas of our lives. If hope can't fix what's broken, why would you put hope in it? And so the object of that hope actually has to deliver, um, and what we're going to see in this, in this uh, throughout the scriptures, but particularly here, is that hope isn't a situation. Hope isn't a circumstance. It's not a location. Hope isn't an experience. Hope is a person, um, and his name is Jesus. And so let's look at our text in Isaiah 59. Um, and we start in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Now what God is doing through his prophet here, he's answering the charge that God's people are making against God, right? They're, 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 they come back to Jerusalem. All the promises that they thought would come true, all of their hopes, don't seem to be adding up. And their accusation is God's hand is too short that he can't save us. These poetic kind of words. He can't hear. He's not hearing um, the cries of his people. And, and what happens here is often what happens to us as well, isn't it? When life isn't working, when, we're, when we tend to be suffering in some way, when we're disappointed, when the comfort and ease that we're used to is interrupted, it's very tempting for us to kind of put God in the dock. It's very tempting for us to put him on trial. And we start to question um, his judgment. We question his faithfulness, his goodness. We question his wisdom. We question his love. And it's very tempting. We looked at Psalm 89 last week, remember? Uh, and we asked these kind of questions. God, where are you? Where is your faithfulness? Where is your grace? Where is your love? I thought you were near to me. I thought you answered my prayers. God, where are you in these moments? Um, and this is exactly what these people are doing in this moment. And, 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 and here's what kind of is, is a warning for us and what can be devastating in this. When we allow our heart to begin to question God's wisdom, when we allow our hearts to question his goodness, um, his presence, the danger in that is then we don't actually run to him for help. 
You don't go to someone for help um, if you doubt that they can help you. Even if it's subtle, this accusation against God can be a spiritually dangerous, precarious place to be. Um, Because to the degree that we've convinced ourselves that God is less than faithful to his promises, that God is less than loving, that he's not as near as we thought that he is, we'll quit running to him. If you go back to Psalm 89 and these other psalms where, we, where, where the people rightly question um, God in that, there's nothing, and I don't want us to be confused. Asking the questions is not wrong, right? The psalmist himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is asking these questions. It's how we ask the questions. Are we asking the questions to God or are we asking the questions just about God? And so we go to God himself with these questions. Um, we read the book of Job, right? Um, deep grief, deep sorrow. And, and, and Job wrestling and asking difficult questions. But he's asking them to the Lord. Um, and so we come to him with these questions. Um, if, uh, Psalm 89 starts with all the positive things they know to be true about God. But then the questions come. But why, why aren't we seeing these things now? What about an hour time? What about an hour day? But it ends with a positive affirmation again um, that blessed be the Lord. Um, and so how we actually wrestle with these things is so important to us. Um, Satan wants us to question the very goodness of God, the very character and integrity of God. Um, it's, it's how he started uh, the whole disaster of how we've been separated from God in the Garden of Eden. And it's, it's, he's a one-trick pony. Um, that's, it's the same thing. He gets us to question, is God really good? Is he really faithful? Can you really put your hope in him? And this is what's happening here. And so God says, no, you've got it wrong. What's going on is not a sign that my hand is too short to save. Um, because of the situation you're in, it's not that my ears are so dull that I can't hear you. I'm not the problem. In fact, when we look at other places in the Old Testament, um, often what's going on when his people are in trouble isn't that God isn't near. It's that God is ever present in those moments trying to get their attention. In Amos chapter four, uh, four, there's this poem and there's this refrain that happens all throughout the poem. Um, and, and the refrain is, but you have not returned to me. And he's like, this is, this, I've sent calamity upon you, but you've not returned to me. Um, I've, I've withheld the rain, um, and, and you didn't, tur- you didn't uh, turn to me. You've lost in battle, but you have not returned to me. Um, things weren't going well for them because God was allowing them not to go well in hopes that they would see that these things would never um, sustain them, that they were to return to him and that he would be their source of, uh, of sustenance. And so God is saying, listen, I've brought these difficulties into your life in order to pry open your hands, to let go of the things that you're putting hope in, so that you would return to me, so that you would place your faith, that you would place your trust in me. Um, These difficulties are not a sign of my unfaithfulness and inattention. In fact, these difficulties are a sign that I am near. Um, Paul Tripp calls these uh, tools of uncomfortable grace. Um, and that's what they are, aren't they? And this is what's happening here. Often the grace of God comes to us in uncomfortable forms. What's happening with his people here is God actually trying to see, helping them see that he actually loves them, 
that he's, he wants to wrap his arms around them. He wants them to return to him in real, true, living faith. And so he brings difficulty upon, not because he doesn't love them, not because he doesn't hear their prayer, not because he's too weak to help, not because he doesn't care, but precisely because he does all those things. And so he says, you've got it wrong. It's a misplaced charge, um, right? Parents, parents will know this. There are, there are times we will allow our kids to go through difficult times on purpose, right? There are, there are times where you, you will withhold things from your kids that they want on purpose. <laughs> and it's not because you don't love them. It's not because you don't care for them. It's precisely because you love and care for them that you will withhold things that they think are, are for their good, um, but that you and your parents, your, uh, your wisdom as parents, understand aren't. And so God comes and he says, this is a misplaced charge. Maybe you're here this morning tempted to feel the same way, doubting God's goodness, tempted to wonder if he hears you. Um, and this is, this is why Advent is so important, right? If Christmas is just about Christmas, and it's just all the great and happy kind of things. It's no wonder that sometimes a lot, there's a, a good portion of our culture and society that find Christmas is one of the hardest times of the year. One of the most difficult times of the year. Because there's this pressure for us to, you know, tis the season. <laughs> like get it together or at least cover it up so that I can, I can feel happy. And so it's a misplaced charge uh, that they have towards God here. And so he follows this with this kind of div- divine accusation to them. And this is going to help us because it's, it's diagnostic of the human soul. And so starting in verses uh, 2 through 8, um, he says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Just know that that is an absolute truth in the Scripture. Our sins, our iniquities, always separate. They always separate us from God. And they separate us from each other. They separate us from. He says, Your sins have hidden his face uh, from you so that he does not hear you. It is God says, it's not me that is the problem here. It is you. It is, it is your actions that have caused these things to happen. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters into suit justly. Everybody's trying to scam and con each other. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Um, in verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Why don't we have peace? Why isn't there peace on earth? Why isn't there peace within our own hearts and within our own, within our own lives? It is because of the separation of, from the Prince of Peace. Uh, the one who can actually give us these things, the one who can actually deliver it. Um, we are, are separated from them. We are separated from him. This is it's, it's a description of a very real problem. Um, but what we like to think is that our, really, that our, our biggest problems uh, are outside of us, right? It's very difficult for us to actually see, no, the problem of most of the situations uh, is isn't the situation. The problem isn't the location. The problem isn't the relationships. Um, we all tend to think of ourselves as one of the good guys, right? It's just the, the deception of our sinfulness. And God says, I'm not the problem. 
Let me tell you the problem. It is you. Um, there's a lot of protesting that happens in the world at the minute, some for very good reason. Um, but I've never seen someone at a protest with a sign, with, a, with an arrow pointing down that says, I am the problem. <laughs> like walking around here, like protesting themselves, right? It's, the problem is always someone else. Um, it's always some, someone else. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a theologian and a, a public writer and things like that, um, I think it was the London Times, um, sent out a, a, questionnaire, a question to all these great thinkers of the time, philosophers and university professors and, and ministers and things like that. And they asked them the question, what is, basically, what is the problem, uh, the biggest problem in the world today? And he just wrote two words, dear sirs, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and he's right, Right? Underneath the surface, we tend to think that other things that are that our biggest problem is outside of, of us. But if you dig below the surface of all of these problems, what you will find is people, right? There's no such thing as a bad marriage. There's no such thing as a bad marriage. There's bad people doing bad things within a marriage. It's husbands and wives doing bad things to each other that makes a marriage bad. You dig to the bottom of a bad marriage, and what will you find? Us. There we are. We're there. There's no such thing as a bad neighborhood. There's no such thing as a dangerous neighborhood. A neighborhood hasn't hurt anyone. It's just there's a bad people living, doing bad things, culminating in this neighborhood where there's violence and there's crime. There are people doing evil, violent, dangerous things in a neighborhood. And so you look into a bad neighborhood, and what will you find? You will find us. There's no such thing as a corrupt government. The institution itself is not a problem. The problem is the people in the government who use their power for personal gain, who exercise their authority uh, for themselves or, or, or corruptly and not for the welfare of the citizens. If you dig below a corrupt government, what will you find? Us. We're there. And so we have to sit under God's charge. And the minute that we realize what he's saying, um, there's a lot of freedom in that. We'll actually find peace within that. Um, we understand that we actually are the problem, that we have taken God's beautiful, glorious, wisely created institutions, and we have messed them up. We've made a mess of them. And that's, we find freedom in that because in that, it means we can't find hope from running to a new location. Because you go to a new location, and what will you find? Us. We're still there. You can't run to a new relationship, because what will you find there? You're, you're still there. We'll never find hope that way. The problem is that there's something that lurks deep within all of us. It's, it's deep, it's dark, and it's dangerous, right? It, it captivates my thoughts. It perverts my desires. It distorts my words. It changes my behavior in wrong ways. And so the prophet here is using um, these three kind of words he uses to describe this problem within us. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Right? So let's just define those. The first one is iniquity. Basically, iniquity means moral uncleanliness. Right? I like to think that I'm pure. I like to think that I'm moral. I like to think that my motives are good. 
um, that my desires um, are pure, my purposes are, are upright. But that's not always true, is it? There's, all of those things are corrupted um, by our sinfulness. There's moral uncleanliness inside of all of us. The second word is transgression. Transgression is just basically high-handed rebellion. It's willingly stepping over boundaries that you know that are there, right? I willingly step over God's boundaries. I willingly step over his rules, and I do it because I don't care, right? So let me just be honest, and I'll share a moment from uh, the last couple days. My wife borrowed my debit card, used the wrong pin code multiple times, and it got locked, right? And then it gave it back to me. And so I'm like, great, now I have a useless piece of plastic that I can't use for anything, and I have to go to the ATM machine, and I have to, you know, unlock it and do all this sort of stuff. So I was really, really annoyed. And, uh, and so I wasn't very gracious to her in my response, and um, I wasn't very kind in that. I was just really annoyed. And I even knew in the moment of the response, I, I just didn't care. My annoyance kind of overruled all of that stuff. Um, and so I'm driving down um, the, the road. This is on a Saturday morning. There's no traffic out. And so the ATM machine is right here um, at this junction where three roads come together. Um, and so I'm like, oh, man, parking, and then I got to walk around, and it's snow. And so I just pull over on the double yellow lines, hit the hazards. No one's around. Jump out of my car, parked in an illegal spot. I know it's illegal. I just didn't care in that moment, right? And so I put my hazards on. I'm a good guy, right? Right? I'm not going to just be a jerk about it. So I get out. I'm at the ATM machine. No car. There's like no traffic, right? And then I hear this like honking, my, uh, this car honking. I'm like, come on. Like you can go around me. And I turn around and it's the police. <laughs> and I was like, all right. I was like, and in that moment, sorry, uh, just a moment, like got to, you know. And so I, I, I you know, uh, I'm like, please don't give me a ticket. Please don't, you know, I'm just, now I'm trying to like get my card out of the machine. Like nothing's for, I didn't even get it unlocked. And uh, in all those moments. So in all of that situation, like in my response to my wife, I knew even, even as I'm saying the words, like the Lord's like tapping me on the shoulder, convicting. And I'm like, I don't care. Like I'm just annoyed at the moment. Um, Double yellow lines. I don't care. Like I'm just going to do what I want to do. And God sends, you know, the police to move you along. It's just transgression. It's, I know the boundaries are there, but in this moment, I just don't care. This other thing is more important. And the third word that Isaiah uses is sin. All these are not very popular words, right? And it's just this, this idea of just falling short of the standard over and over and over again. Like an archer pulling his bow back. As, as hard as he can and, and trying to get his aim just right and never being able to hit the target. Just constantly falling sh- short. And so because all these things are inside of me, iniquity is inside of me, transgression is inside of me, sin is inside of me, we just, all of us, make a mess of God's good creations. And this is what's happening here. It's his people have um, turned from, from the Lord. And they're living kind of their consequences. And so our greatest problem, the thing that needs to be fixed the most, is inside of us. It's not outside of us. And that's the truth. And we'll never, we'll never find hope. We'll never find peace if we don't actually listen to God's accusation to us. Um, and so those aren't easy words to have to listen to. 
um, but they're important. So we see this confession then that follows in verse 9. Their response, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but what do we get? Darkness. We want brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as though it was dark, as though it was twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. You ever been in a really, like a pitch black room um, and not know how to, where the lights are? And it's this kind of like, I'm just kind of feeling along the wall trying to find the light. So I can turn the light back on. This is this picture. This is, this is how they are spiritually. This is how, although they can see, it's, it's darkness. They don't know their way. They're like dead men, zombies walking around. We all growl like bears, right? That's just me in the morning. Just growling at people. We hope for justice, but there isn't any. We hope for salvation, but it's far from us. This is their confession, right? It's a descri- this is a description of us in this moment when we've lost our way. It's like someone's turned the lights of our, our life off and we're just in the dark. We don't know our way. We don't know how to get out of it. We're just groping. We're fumbling ar- around in the dark. And this is us, right? When we've lost our way, when we're at this significant moment of decision, we either point the finger at somebody else or we'll make the confession This is the choice that we have. And this is what happens next, right? In verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. This is the confession that they make. They they say, yes, guilty is charged. We accept it. We are the problem. We understand. It's not you and a God who can't reach down. It's not you, a God who can't hear. And once we're in this place, now we're in a place that we can actually start to find hope because they're in an utterly hopeless place. They're dead. They're in the dark. They want salvation, but it just seems so far away. And this is where we start to get into a hopeless place where we understand the deep abiding problem is one that I can't solve because it's me. I can't run from the situation because where I run, there I am. I can't run from a relationship because I can't run from me. This is good news for us. Um, This doorway, this hopelessness that actually leads to real hope because it tells you um, not only is it the hopelessness to hope in you, but it's also hopeless to hope in other, but in other people as well because they all suffer from the same condition. That's why when we, we put all of our hope on, on the love of our life, on our soulmate, I don't know those terms are very helpful, right? They're not, you and I were not created to bear that kind of weight, if, if my wife is expecting me to fulfill all the hopes that she's ever had, she's in trouble. And so are we all. Because you and I were not made, we were not created to bear that kind of weight. Wherever you run to new locations, 
to new situations. I'm going to get a different job. I'm going to move to a different city. All of those places that you would run to are populated by people who are desperately as hopeless as you are. And so we start to come to the end. We come to the place uh, where, where they were in verse 12. There is no hope to be found. Whatever it is that we are hoping, placing our hope in, whatever it is that we're expecting us to give us peace, it's a false hope. It's a false hope. And we need to hear that because we're in that situation, aren't we? We constantly forget that situation. We forget. We turn. We, we need to be reminded over and over and over again. There's only one person who can be our Savior. There's only one Messiah that is coming. There's only one who can give us the life, the peace, the security that we're seeking. And it is the creator, not any creation. And so we have to abandon um, hope in all those kind of uh, false hopes. We have to abandon all of that stuff. We're not going to meet a person who's going to give us everything that we want in life. Yes, you might meet a, a, a future spouse, sure. And, and God says that's a great gift. Kids are a great gift from the Lord, but they are those things. They are from him. They are uh, shadows of, uh, of, of the joy that is actually there. These things that we find joy in are meant to elevate our true joy um, to God himself. Now look at where the passage then goes next, um, starting in, um, well, let's just look at in verse 14. Tell me that this isn't a, de- a description of our current time. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled into public squares. And that could have been written today, right? Fake news, what is real? Truth has stumbled into public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's how bad, like, to be in cahoots with evil is the safe place to be right now. You leave evil, you stand against that, you become prey, not predator. Is that not a description of the world that we live in? But look at the, look at the second part of 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Right? Now, this isn't God wondering like he's confused. This is the prophet speaking in ways that we understand. Here's what God's saying. He looks around. There is no horizontal hope to be found. His people are in a desolate place, but there's no one, there's no man to be found that's going to give them hope. No one is going to provide what they're seeking. And so in light of all of this, in light of this lostness, in light of their rebellion and transgression and sin and iniquity, what does he do next? He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't say, that's it, I've had it. You just get whatever you deserve. Verse 16. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance of clothing and wrapped himself in a zeal uh, as a cloak. This term, um, he brought 
his own arm of salvation. Anytime in the Old Testament you see this phrase, the arm of the Lord, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, one of the names of Jesus. It's one of the names of the Messiah, the arm of the Lord. God's saying, now that you're in your uttermost kind of darkness, you have no hope, you've nowhere to look, I myself am going to send it. I will send hope. It won't be a situation. It won't be other human relationships. It's not going to be a, a, a location. Your hope won't be in Jerusalem. It won't be in a temple. It won't be in any of these things. It will be in a person. And his name is Jesus. Hope is coming. And that is the Christmas story, isn't it? Christmas is a hope story. It's a hope coming story. It's why the angels sing these glorious songs. It's why wise men come from the east to worship. It's why shepherds were absolutely blown away and astonished. Because hope had invaded the earth. And hope came in the person of Jesus Christ. Hope had come. Hope that had been so long lost. Hope that had seemed to be destroyed is now returning. And this is the, the prophet Isaiah promising, pushing the promises of the Lord further, further on. What is it? It goes on to say, according, he will, um, he will put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his, adversity, his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. The Lord is going to deal with evil. God will punish wrong. Evil will be repaid. Now these are graphic words, aren't they? And, and they're really meant to bring two things to us simultaneously. Terror and comfort. <laughs> um, and, and those don't seem like those should be two sides of the same coin. And yet they are, aren't they? Um, they, they should make us serious and afraid but they should also comfort us at the same time. They should make us serious uh, and afraid because it's very clear that the prophet is saying that this world is a moral world. It is a moral world. There is justice and injustice. There are oppressed and oppressors. There is a moral uh, measuring that has to take place. And it's ruled, this, this moral world is ruled by a holy God who takes these things very seriously. He takes sin and oppression very seriously. It's serious. Sin is evil. It's disastrous. It always leads to death. It leads to our separation from him. And so a holy God's never going to say, listen, it's okay for you to sin. I'll let it slide. It's okay for you to transgress. It's okay to have iniquity. As long as you're, as long as you're happy, I'm happy. No. God doesn't going to, he's not going to tolerate these things. It's clear he will he will enact justice. He will punish every sin. The problem, though, is that you and I don't always see ourselves as sinful, <laughs> right? Sin doesn't always look to me the way that it looks to God. Sin doesn't look evil to me at times, right? If you're, if, if, if you're a man or, or a woman um, and, and you're looking at lust with someone else, in that moment, that doesn't feel dangerous. It feels like pleasure. It feels like beauty, it doesn't feel dangerous in that moment. If you're a teenager and you're kind of rebelling against your parents by doing something they don't want you to do, you don't feel the danger of sin in that moment. 
You feel the buzz of kind of this temporary independence. It doesn't seem evil in our, in our, in our ways, right? But it's clear that there is a God who absolutely perfectly commits justice, that sin will be de- dealt with. But there's comfort in that as well, right? Maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound very comforting. But it, but it is. You don't want to live in a world that's ruled by someone who doesn't care about justice, right? You, you wouldn't want to live in a world where the person who's actually ruling was incapable of being angry about evil. There is a way in which God's righteous anger, his holy justice, is the hope of the universe. We just have to be able to see that God's anger with sin, his commitment to justice means he will not rest until sin is forever defeated. He's not going to relent. He's not going to quit until sin is delivered um, out of the hearts of every one of his kids. There will be a moment where sin is no more. Because God is committed to justice. There will be that moment. And there's hope and comfort in that, is there not? If you're the oppressed, that should bring comfort. If you're the oppressor, that should make us afraid. The problem is, is you and I are both of those things. (laughs) Right? We have sinned and we have been sinned against. And so it brings both of these things to us. God doesn't just come armed with justice. He comes armed with grace. This is where we get comfort. Look at the words. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. That is where we get hope. He comes with justice, but he also comes with mercy. He comes in power and in might, but he comes with love and mercy and grace. And he declares, I'm going to send a redeemer. Redemption is such a beautiful term. To redeem just means to buy something back. We are enslaved to our sin. Jesus comes as a redeemer. I will purchase your freedom. I will pay the price for you to go free. I'm going to send my son He's going to live on your behalf, a perfect life that you can live. He's going to take your sin on himself, die the death that you should die. He dies as the spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice, and in his death satisfies God's justice for those who will accept that, turn, believe, for those who will turn from transgression. What great hope. What great source of peace. This is Advent. It's longing for God to come and make right. But also knowing that we stand in the path of that wrath. And so he comes and he sends a redeemer. What an amazing plan. An amazing plan that satisfies God's justice that satiates his wrath against the things that he should be angry at, the things that you and I get angry about, and yet providing a way for us to escape those things, for his wrath and his justice to be satisfied. 
but for us to escape that through his grace and his mercy. This is the path of hope. This is the road to peace. Verses 16 to 20 are a prediction, really, of the cross of Christ. They're an announcement of of the cross because it's on the cross, this holy justice of God, this amazing grace of God. These things come together. They kiss in this moment. It's in that moment the justice of God is meted out on Christ. He bears the anger. He bears the punishment. He takes the penalty that was ours. And it's also in this moment that the grace of God explodes in, in abundant forgiveness and mercy to all who receive, to all who receive. It's on the cross that Christ comes as one who is hope. He brings together the justice and grace of God. And hope is returned because in that moment where justice and grace both come together that are delivered to us, it, it, they deliver to us the one thing that we need, help with our deepest problem. Our iniquity, our transgression, our sin. The Old Testament saints were living between this messiness kind of, of, of the already and the not yet, right? They had already been redeemed from Egypt. The law had already been given to them. Um, already prophets had spoken to them. Already the glory of God had lived in the center of the people in the temple. But they had not yet received the promised Messiah. They were still holding out hope for the culmination of of the Messiah to come. And you too enter into that same space. We enter into that same space, the already and the not yet in Advent. Jesus has already come the first time. He's already lived. He's died. He's rose on our behalf. He's already, the word has been given to us. Already the spirit has been given to us. But not yet has sin been completely defeated. Not yet are we in the final kingdom. We live in the messiness of already and not yet. And in that messiness, we reach out for hope. We long for the day where sin and death and suffering is finally defeated. And that will come with Jesus' second and final return, his second advent. And it's in him that our hope, it's in him that our peace can be found when it's placed rightly on him. It's him who enters our difficult moment. It's him who enters into a place in eternity where there'll be no sickness, where there'll be no suffering, where there'll be no sin. It's him who goes to prepare a place for us to join in there. And if he's guaranteed for us a place in eternity, then he must have also guaranteed for you all the grace that you need along the way. Because it's that grace along the way. If you didn't get that grace, you'd never arrive in the end. So he promises us the end, but he also promises the means by which to get there through his grace. And so the promise of future grace is a promise of, it's a promise of present grace here and now. A promise of his future presence is a promise of his, 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 his present presence. <laughs> this is our reason for hope. This is our source of peace. Because no matter how troubling our situations are, no matter how difficult a location you're in, no matter how hard the people in in your life are, the relationships that you're in, you can wake up in the morning and say, I have met hope. Hope has invaded my life in the person of Jesus Christ. There's hope in my world. 
I can have peace. Even when truth stumbles in the public squares, even when everybody seems to be on a crooked path that doesn't lead to peace, even though this is the world that I live in, threat of nuclear war, in the midst of all of that, we are called to be a people together that know peace, that know hope, and live in that reality in such a way that that then becomes a light to other people. That was what they were supposed to be doing. Verse 21. A redeemer will come. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your offspring or from the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. From generations to generations, he will be faithful. It continues into chapter 60. We didn't read this, but let me just read a few, a few of the first verses. It continues on. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. That's the challenge for us this morning. Though we live in a dark world, we live as people who can see, who can see the real reality of hope. We lift up our eyes and we see that God has shined, he has shone upon us. In the midst of darkness, he has come. Now there is a way for us to have peace. Because he's undone the beginning of this chapter. Our sin has no longer separated us. The Redeemer has come and reunited us to God. That is the message this morning. That is the message of, of Christmas. That is the message of Advent, that we enter into this wadeful Hope, not just a future peace, but a present peace now. Not just a future hope, but a present hope now. May we be Christmas people. May we be Advent people. This is what it means to make room in our hearts for him. To actually live in the reality not in the false reality of what Christmas is built up to be. Not in the false expectations that will let us down. Not in all the presents that you've opened all the years that now are in a landfill somewhere. But in a, in a present reality of hope. A present reality of peace found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me pray.